This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update video and podcast. Today, I'm joined by the AMA's president, Dr. Gerald Harmon, a family medicine specialist in Pauley's Island, South Carolina, who's going to talk about what we can do to fix our public health system and rebuild trust. That is a big job. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's chief experience officer in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Harmon, welcome back. Uh, You recently marked the two-year anniversary of the pandemic with a national address uh, that was delivered via live stream from the National Press Club in which you talked about two pandemics, defeating COVID-19 and rebuilding trust. Why is this mistrust and confronting this mistrust a pandemic in and of itself right now? Todd, thanks. You're right. And we are, uh, for many Americans, two 24 months to the day almost when we shut down a lot of our practices, shut down a lot of uh, businesses in the uh, middle of March, right around March 13th in 2020. The two-year anniversary we uh, actually marked at the press club was in February, we actually marked the first death in the United States from someone from COVID. So that was a very momentous, uh, unfortunately, a, 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 anniversary, a two-year anniversary. And you're right, since the start of the pandemic, almost from the start, we've talked about fighting a two-front battle on against the virus itself, then on some misinformation and some uh, inappropriate uh, interpretation of some recommendations and some, some basically lack of uh, confidence that I think now represents a pandemic of distrust in addition to the COVID pandemic that we find ourselves still in. Did the pandemic cause this uh, through missteps and misinformation in the last two years, or has this always been a problem? You know, Todd, I think we we were on the cusp of having some distrust and some loss of confidence in our institutions before we had the COVID virus, before we could spell SARS-CoV-2, as it were. So we were already beginning to have an erosion of trust and and belief in in public health agencies and public agencies in general, government, administration, and even remarkably in the press, the media, and in the medical professions. We were beginning to have an erosion of trust before that. And of course, what we've had now is this polarization, as it were, uh, of the COVID pandemic, where you can't even you even tend, tend to polarize the science recommendations from public health departments, public health officials, uh, respected doctors and scientists, that we now are, are not even able to trust them. That's a real uh, pandemic of distrust that we need to address and, and, and get ahead of as well as the actual COVID virus itself. Well, at this point, what have we learned? and How do we begin to create a health system that better prepares our nation for whatever comes next? And that, as we've discovered, is pretty unpredictable. Well, what we have learned is that we need a focused and comprehensive effort to rebuild this trust, to to establish that lost trust that we've had over the last couple of years. We've got to have we've got to counter the voices who are attempting to uh, spread distrust, misinformation, what we even now call disinformation, which isn't just a misinterpretation, but deliberate effort to mislead and, and inappropriately guide uh, millions of Americans uh, in, in social media postings, online, inappropriate stuff. And unfortunately, some of these, uh, of a small minority of the purveyors of misinformation have been practicing physicians, some other health professionals as well. And, and that's kind of a 
that that's kind of offensive to me and it's kind of egregious because what's happened if folks deliberately try to mislead patients to the to the detriment of their good health and what should be established uh public health and you're 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 running right against the uh running contrary to the code of ethics you know we're we're, we're, they, they violate the ethics if they deliberately mislead patients. Now, I'm not talking about the individual physician-patient relationship where occasionally some doctors will recommend for some reason a medical excuse or medical uh, hold on uh, perhaps, perhaps viral uh, uh, immunizations and or even some treatments because they understand the patient, they understand them as an individual. I, I'm talking, and we don't want to come in between the physician-patient relationship on an individual basis, but there are, unfortunately, there have been practicing physicians and healthcare workers who have based made it almost a, their mission to post uh, misdirection and uh, uh, disinformation online, social postings, uh, uh, taking it to a whole new level of, uh, of communications and blatantly uh, uh, against the published science, the peer-reviewed evidence, and I think put substantial numbers of Americans, not necessarily their patients, but others who look to them for uh, guidance uh, at, at substantial health risk. And those are the ones that I think we need to consider uh, modifying our, our, our discomfort with and ask them to be held accountable for that deliberate disinformation. Yeah, that's something I don't think we expected to see. And I, uh, it has been incredibly frustrating. Well, you know, and I'll go ahead and say, not only is it frustrating to me as a doc and to many of us and, and leaders in uh, public health agencies and officials and the scientists, but it's led not only to, um, to misdirection and then we have to fight the battle of uh, distrust and mistrust, but they're putting patients at risk. You know, I was looking uh, online today, uh, uh, th this week, to check uh, about the vaccination rate for children. You know, only about a quarter of Americans' children who are eligible have actually received their vaccinations. This is a, a virus that affects children. It can cause a lifetime of problems. It can cause uh, serious inflammatory syndromes in children in, 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 younger than five, unfortunately. And, but those five and up should be vaccinated. There's a clear indication that vaccines help those but I think it's partly uh, due to some of this misinformation, disinformation, 75% now of those are eligible are not getting the vaccinations. That's a risk factor that we're, some of this disinformation campaign is directly impacting the health of, of these young children. That's, that's not, that's egregious. Agree. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. In addition to the pandemic of misinformation, uh, we've learned a lot over the course of the last two years. Uh, the pandemic worsened a lot of the situations in healthcare uh, that were already kind of broken. Uh, in your, uh, your speech, you've kind of outlined five specific steps to help fix our health system. Um, the first one, you know, gosh, we remember two years ago, physicians were getting you know, handed their PPE in a bag and told, you know, you got to work with us because you just don't have enough. So why don't we start there? Because that was kind of point number one, PPE. Well, you know, I remember exactly your description. You know, I, we all got fitted. We usually were fitted anyway for our uh, N95 mask, our appropriate uh, uh, medical grade, high grade masking. We had distinct fits for them. 
And then we went to buy our, our, our uh, distribution centers, our offices, or wherever we could find them at the time, and a healthcare system, uh, occupational health nurses or the uh, employee health nurses would give us our mask, and we'd go to the intensive care units, the operating room, get our mask. You're right. We were given a paper bag to put it in, and we were thinking, well, how many times can I use it before it literally falls apart? Uh, I have to keep writing my name on the bag, and I will store it in my locker, all these things, because... They were, these were critical assets, and we didn't know if we were going to have them for the next go. And we were using our gowns, reusable gowns. We were very cautious at them. I'd wear a cloth gown a couple of times, change double glove, triple glove in between them. Uh, we, were, we didn't understand the virus. We were very scared about it. We were decontaminating all manner of surfaces. We were worried about, did we have PPE? We would take our shoes off. And some of us would go home, and our spouses, our family members, out of concern for them, we would literally have a change of clothes at the door. Because we didn't know what we might be bringing home that could injure our patients, our family members, and other patients in our day-to-day -day operations. A credible shortage that I think uh, we thank goodness now we should not have to go through again. How do we fix that? Well, infrastructure. We're going to have to make sure that we have an adequate supply, uh, 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 even if it involves using strategic national stockpiles, as I mentioned in my address at the National Press Club. We need to have public partner, uh, public private relationships. Uh, we've learned how to do this before. Let's don't let it happen again. Uh, so the PPE, we have to have funding for it, but we need to invest not only in the national stockpile, but in our public health infrastructure, which is, uh, you know, part two of my plan. We have chronic disinvestment in the public health infrastructure that's put us at substantial risk. You know, we 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 don't really have uh, without a pandemic, the public health infrastructure was kind of out of sight and out of mind, and so we didn't invest with it. We lost uh, uh, a lot of infrastructure and we need to invest more in that going forward. You know, we have as much as uh, 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 public health spending, I think, if I remember my, my talking points in the speech, we have 16% uh, uh, less investment in public health infrastructure than we had over the last decade. So we have as many 40,000 public health jobs unfilled. This is a, a huge impact. On, uh, on the health of the nation for the next pandemic or the next public health emergency, and there will be one. So really those two steps are about preparedness, having the PPP, PPE on hand uh, in case something were like this to happen again and investing in that public health, health infrastructure uh, to be ready. Your, your third step um, is uh, related to the vaccine. Um, you suggested we need to replicate Operation Warp Speed, uh, which is a good thing that came out of this pandemic, maybe not the right brand. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, he, he, clearly what happened with Operation Warp Speed, was, and I called it in my talk, uh, a modern miracle. It really was a medical miracle. Uh, you remember one of the things the, the CDC, the FDA, and the NIH and the government all developed was this incredibly effective vaccine in a very, very unprecedented, rapidly uh, uh, developed, rapid time of development. But no operational steps were skipped. There was no uh, um, hurdles that weren't cleared that were appropriate for science, appropriate for the, all the uh, research base approval protocols. What was compressed was the time frame for deliberation about how do we fund this? Who's going to do it? Choices of vendors, all the things that were compressed. And so we need to make sure we memorialize the steps, allow all the bureaucratic, but not necessarily scientific steps to be compressed. And that, that, that's what we need to think about. Uh, so next time we need a vaccination, next time we need a therapy for uh, a viral pandemic or any type of uh, situation, maybe a, 
chemical warfare or something or whatever, biologic warfare, anything that could happen. We need to be prepared as a nation uh, and as a profession to be able to go right back to the warp speed type methodology and bypass all the bureaucracy and go straight to the science and the operational execution and development and then logistics and distribution. Really is a miracle. And uh, what you point out is just that process needs to be in place and needs to be replicable. Um, you know, if there is any kind of silver lining in uh, the past two years, it's been around telehealth. How do we keep, you know, telehealth and use it to help shape care going forward? You know, I've used that analogy of the uh, the silver lining, and, and there there are not a lot of silver linings to this COVID cloud, but but there is always. You know, I, I've told you before, my pathologic optimism makes me look for that silver lining. It makes a lot of us in healthcare, especially on the front lines, that are uh, they're seeing these day to day, and have literally seen it. We're looking for how can we get better? How can we improve? Where how can we continuously learn from our experiences and our teachings? And so we all try to maintain open minds. Uh, telehealth. Digital medicine, uh, it has been remarkably effective. We have made progress over the last two months that I wouldn't have thought we would make in a decade of operationalizing uh, uh, things like a Zoom meeting, a Teams meeting, standard uh, uh, operational uh, uh, visits with our doctors, with other colleagues, patients can use, even if they can't use a a picture uh, setup or a video setup, they can use the telephone. We have found that Digital communications, even as old-fashioned as a, a landline telephone, calling to somebody, getting advice, presenting your follow-up, maybe with some home monitoring now as we talk about digital medicine, where you've got some uh, at-home oxygen testing equipment, maybe an at-home uh, blood pressure monitor or glucose tester, all these things that we can now have, digital cardiograms, things like that. You can wear it at home. All that's innovation that we're talking about as a positive of digital health and something we can move forward with uh, in the future after the COVID pandemic wanes. And also make sure that the Congress, thank goodness, uh, allows funding, allows these to be paid for through standard uh, uh, compensation methods so that the, the providers can sustain telehealth as a basis for their patients. Patients can get telehealth covered by their insurance, especially Medicare and Medicaid, which is the, the standard for a lot of uh, uh, third-party payers in the United States. We know that health care delivered via digital health for chronic diseases and maybe for some acute episodic disease is reasonable. It does have good quality outcomes. It's replicable. It's dependable. Now, not everything can be done, but it, uh, via digital means. You can't sew up a, a wound. You can't fix a broken bone or something that way. And you can't listen to a heart sound or something, but you can do a lot of things. You can look at someone's distress, hear their symptoms, check on how they're doing post-procedure. And it saves the patient having to get out in the, the world to leave the comfort and safety of their home. They can get follow-up. They know they've talked to their trusted doctor. All of that's a positive, and that's the silver lining that we need to make sure we sustain after the COVID pandemic subsides. And what is really uh, tremendous, you know, when you talk, you covered the the whole of telehealth. It's not was not just the technology. There's so much more involved um, in that ecosystem to make it work. And so it is incredible how fast that came together uh, over the past two years to serve patients. Um, your your final, uh, you know. Uh, step in this plan, something so important, and maybe something, you know, people have taken for granted over the course of these last two years, is taking care of physicians and these healthcare teams, they've been under so much pressure for two years. Uh, Not surprisingly, you know, we really do need to pay attention to the mental health needs uh, of physicians as part of this recovery plan. Talk more about that. 
Todd, uh, all of us are having, I, I've talked about COVID pandemic fatigue and the COVID illness, the threat of COVID making us feel bad and even having COVID. We've all uh, had family members, we've lost workers uh, due to the COVID virus. So we, we have some emotional fatigue from that for sure. We also have some COVID pandemic response fatigue. We're, we're, we're so um, isolated for sometimes our coworkers. We haven't been able to have in-person meetings. We can't have, we have not had, uh, for instance, this collegial meeting sometimes in the, the doctor's lounges, the medical society, the, the large professional meetings, just because COVID pandemic has limited what we're able uh, to, to have uh, in-person meetings for. We also have, a, we just, we, we've called on every healthcare worker, not just physicians, but pharmacists, nurses, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, uh, radiology technicians, everybody has been thrown into uh, long uh, work weeks, long work hours, uh, days on end of taking care of chronically and then acutely ill patients. And we really have had, even before the COVID pandemic, we've had some burnout, some health uh, provider burnout, burnout, and now we've got caregiver burnout too on top of that. It gets so worn out and so emotionally and mentally fatigued taking care of chronically ill patients in a COVID pandemic that we feel like it's been frustrating for us because some of these folks, if they could have, if we could have convinced them to get vaccinated, they might not have gotten as ill as they did or even died from it. And we would have, if we didn't have such an, uh, an epidemic of acutely ill and chronically ill COVID patients, we might have been able to have a little bit of respite in our caregiver burnout, not only from family members, but from healthcare workers too. But it just kept days after day. I, I know I spent sometimes weeks, uh, 100 hour plus work weeks, uh, taking care of inpatients in the ICU and the emergency room and in the uh, wards of the hospital, overwhelmed along with my colleagues. And I saw fatigue in their eyes. I mentioned in my talk to the press club, this looks like battle fatigue to me. Looks like what I've seen when you keep bringing waves and waves of injured folks in. And the caregivers just kind of get a little bit of inured to it. They still do their job, but they're fatigued emotionally. They do everything they can for the patients in front of them, but they get physically and psychologically fatigued. We have to recognize that this behavioral health fatigue is something we're going to have to address. We can give them all the love, all the support, and tell them how much we appreciate them. But we need to take operational steps. We need to recognize that these young and old people that are providing care in the healthcare environment need operational support. We've got to figure out a way to offer them public health uh, and behavioral health support. We've got to make sure they know that we're there for them, not just telling them thanks and out of boys and out of girls, but operationalizing. Uh, come out with, we've had the Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, named after an emergency physician who took her own life a couple of months into the pandemic. Her family uh, organized a, a foundation. We've had some regulatory and legislative changes just passed by the government. We need to provide resources for all healthcare providers to get care, to not be stigmatized or embarrassed to ask for help. And we need to be able to reach out to our colleagues and say, hey, Dr. Harmon, you need some help. You need some help. You're, I know you're, work, you're a hero, you're working really hard, but you know, 100 hours is gonna have his physical and psychological toll. I worry about your behavioral health not affecting your judgment and your interpersonal relationships. So we need to also understand when our colleagues come to us, they're not stigmatizing us. We're able to ask for help, get it, and go right back into work. That's all part of a healthcare uh, provider protection act, and part of what we need to do as a profession and as a society. We don't need to be where we are now, and we don't ever want to be this way again. Well, I am, you know, inspired by your plan, and as kind of a centerpiece of your AMA presidency, uh, it's really momentous. Um, 
what do you see as the AMA's role in this rebuilding of trust and making these fixes happen? Well, we're working, as you know, uh, uh, with all of these uh, fixes. We've operationalized some of them. We told them what we can do. But what we need to do is probably have a little bit of a reset in how we train physicians. We need to reimagine. That's part of the AMA's Accelerating Change in Medical Education Program, where we're trying to get the workforce for the 21st century prepared, the healthcare work, workforce, the physician-led healthcare worker workforce. We're trying to reimagine residency. We're uh, changing medical education to bring along support structures, to bring an increasingly diverse uh, healthcare worker, physician workforce, so it helps address equity, so that the marginalized, uh, chronically marginalized communities who uh, may represent 30% of the American population, but only about 12 to 15% of the workforce. We need to make sure we have a more diverse workforce to help improve equity, health equity, to improve uh, outcomes. We know we found in the COVID pandemic that marginalized communities uh, may have two to three times the mortality uh, and morbidity uh, than uh, uh, others, than white communities. So we need to address that reality. Uh, we're, uh, we're trying really hard to, to put these fixes in place. We've made some good steps. We've advanced our health equity. We've advanced our accelerating change in medical education, reimagining residency. We're having a, we're asking physicians and organized medicine to speak with one voice. That way we can impact change. One or two doctors or even three or four hundred doctors can't make a difference, but thousands of doctors, the AMA's 286,000 members can speak with one voice with respect and authority and represent a huge spectrum and diverse workforce group of doctors. And we can, we can implement change. So yeah, we're, we owe it to uh, not only this current generation of uh, uh, healthcare workers and, and physicians and patients, but we need to work, work this way for future generations of doctors and patients. Well, we know uh, one thing that we've learned over the course of the past two years is things are very unpredictable. And I think your plan outlines the steps that we need to take to make sure that we're ready for whatever Mother Nature throws at us next. Dr. Herman, thank you so much for all your work and for your perspective here today. Uh, you can watch Dr. Herman's National Press Club speech in full on the AMA's website or through the link in the description of this particular episode. So uh, take a look at that. Uh, we'll be back soon with another COVID-19 update. For resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.